For those of you that follow along and like to look ahead at what's coming up in our sermon series and those sorts of things, you would look this week and you would see 2 Timothy 2.15. You'd read the passage of Scripture, and then you would say, I have no idea what that has to do with what he's talking about today. And, and you're okay. Um, I'm going to be doing kind of two separate things. They'll connect, uh, and the passage will make sense as we move along why I've chosen that. As a church and as a church body, uh, for a long, long time, each time we do communion at the beginning of the month, we recite the Apostles' Creed as our affirmation of faith. We've been doing this for years. I grew up in the church. I remember doing it as a kid. I like that. I think it's good. I think it keeps it before us, what we believe, and we affirm it verbally every month. Now, I say that, and of course, last month, what did we do? But we recited Philippians 2 as our creed which is a creed. Uh, But usually we do the Apostles' Creed. Every so often we mix it up, and I'm okay with that. But if you read that creed, and and we recited it in confirmation this morning, that was part of their task, and so I have it memorized, but standing in front of people, it's amazing what you forget. So I have it written down. When we get to the second, the middle and longest section of the creed right there, if you can see, you know, we've already said, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Then we say, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And we recite that once a month about Jesus specifically. And what it tells us as we read the creed, it tells us some theological statement. It tells us some factual statement, what Jesus did. But it also tells us, importantly, where Jesus is now. Now, it's based on Scripture. It is not Scripture. But it's, it's affirming what Scripture already tells us, and we affirm that together with specific words from a creed. And creeds function like sort of uh, minutes from a meeting. They're telling us and highlighting important things for us to recognize and remember. But we're told in that that Jesus didn't go away and disappear and is now no longer ex- in existence. Jesus still exists, as it turns out. And that's what Christianity has claimed since its beginning. That's what Scripture tells us. You can read things like John 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians 1, all ones, very conveniently, right? That tell us that Jesus existed and Jesus still does. He was there at creation. He was there before creation. He's still around. And we're told that he's here. We affirm that as the church. Jesus is uncreated. He's not the highest level of being God created. He's uncreated. He's not part of creation. He's something apart from that. He has always existed, not was, but is. That's a big distinction to make. And that's the first thing I want to make this morning as a distinction. But I want to talk about why this matters, why we would even say Jesus exists at all, not Jesus existed, and why we'd even bother bringing this up. Uh, These creeds, as I said, give us a snapshot of belief. They give us something uh, that's very timely, typically. They're often a response. They're not going to be comprehensive of our faith. They're going to tell us important things that we ought to recognize. And it's important that we take time on a regular basis to affirm some basics of what we believe as the people of God. And so we're going to do that over the next five weeks, specifically about Jesus. What spurred this on for me was a a study I read uh, earlier last year Uh, by the Barna organization. They're kind of like the Christian Gallup organization. They do very good work and have for decades now. And they always have these fascinating reports that they put out. And this one was, what do Americans believe about Jesus? Really interesting. You'll see the the, uh, on the screen here what they are. They came five findings 
the one is, the first one is, the vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. So our work today is easy, as it turns out. Secondly, younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe Jesus was God. So he wasn't divine. He was a created being. Third, Americans are divided on whether Jesus was sinless. And I will tell you that I've even heard this within the church. Within the church circles, I've even heard people moving in this direction. Fourth, most Americans say they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, a whole host of questions should pop out at this point if you're looking at this. How can we make a commitment to Jesus Christ if we think he was potentially sinful and if he probably wasn't God? What are we actually committing to at that point? But most Americans say they have. And finally, people are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as the way to heaven. That's what the findings showed in 2015. I don't think the needle has moved much since that point. I don't know what your experience is. My experience, especially with a couple of these, is that that these are true, at least anecdotally, that a lot of people are conflicted on some of these, especially the last one. Watch TV, watch movies, go and have a conversation, even hear the passing comments of some of your coworkers, for instance, sometimes who will say, well, that deed wasn't good enough to get me into heaven, or that'll prevent me from getting there. Right? So we're conflicted on these things. Sometimes we have mixed up beliefs. And, and I don't stand before you as some kind of cultural alarmist because I'm not. And I'm not going to stand before you and say this is a, a, the, the worst period of history ever morally and all these other things like that. We got problems. Let's, let's face it. But there are other periods of history that have been bad. And you could find periods of history in parts of the world that have been much worse. We got problems. I'm not going to deny that. I think we have issues in even looking at this list. We got issues that need to be addressed. So we're going to address some of these issues as we talk about this. Now, an interesting image that came to me this week as I was working on this is from apologist Brett Kunkel, who works with Stand to Reason, if you're familiar with that organization. He was talking about the fact that that there's been sort of a push on Christianity culturally for a long time. Perhaps you felt it. But he, he said there's sort of two different ways that we've felt it. One is as a bulldozer as if it's crashing into a house, and you can tell it's coming. So you can read things by the, the crop of atheists out there that called the New Atheists, if you've read any of their stuff, uh, Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, or Dawkins, or, or Singer, some of those. It's very clear that they're making a concerted effort to push back, often at religion, and Christianity gets pulled in there because it's an easy target. Um, but they're often just very angrily pushing at religion. They have some substantive arguments. Some are not so substantive. They're just angry. But it's clear they're pushing against Christianity, attacking it like a bulldozer running into a house. But Kunkel also points out, and he says, what we kind of experience probably more in our day-to-day living is something more like termites attacking a house. Things that aren't directly attacking our faith, like the Bible isn't true or Jesus wasn't real, but maybe moral questions or ethical questions that come into our lives and make us begin to question certain things about the integrity of our faith. And they work like termites in a house, slowly eating away at the structural integrity of our faith without us even realizing it. Until we have a lot of questions and we don't feel like we have a lot of answers. Or until we have a lot of questions and we think, well, maybe Jesus was really a sinful person just like me. Maybe that's easier to believe that. And, and that, I don't stand, like I said, as a cultural alarmist, but what I want to do uh, with you today and over the next five weeks, it, yeah, we're going to have a couple apologetic moments in each sermon. That is a defense of the faith, a verbal defense of the faith, not saying I'm sorry. 
That's one way of saying apology, but apology being a defense of what we believe. And I don't want to take a lot of time uh, to defend the faith from external sources. We'll do just a little bit of that each week so that we have an idea just to whet your appetite. And I want to resource you when I can on, on if you want to go further with that. But I want to look at Scripture and what Scripture affirms about itself as much as we can. And this week, I actually want to, instead of simply making the case Jesus is real, I think it's actually an easy case to make. And I'll whet your appetite for that. I want us to recognize why this matters to have the solid foundation and how we can move in that direction very easily and and persist in that way. And so what I want to look at, if you're going to follow along in your Bible or on your phone, 2 Timothy 2.15, the one verse is our main verse for today. But we will pick up the passage from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8 at some point if you're going to flip back and forth. So 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who is not ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. That's going to be our foundation passage going forward these next few weeks. Our approach is over these five topics. Jesus is God, or Jesus is real. Jesus is God. Jesus never sinned. Jesus saves, and Jesus redeems. That's what we're going to say. And my assumption in all this is not to make an argument that the Bible is true. I'm assuming that. I'm assuming the Bible is true. I'm assuming in all of this that God has given us his revelation through Scripture. It's not a book by humans for humans. It's, it's God's revealed word to us. God revealing himself in the pages of Scripture. It is inspired by God. And my assumption is that the Bible holds itself up pretty well. If you open the book, if you experience the book, if you read it, if you try and live it, you discover the truth. And I'll give you an example as we start here today. I was in a conversation uh, with uh, a young man a number of years ago who was an atheist. His parents both worked for big Christian non well, one small Christian nonprofit, one big that you would know. He had turned away from the faith as he entered college and become an atheist. And so I sat down with him. I knew him. I had a relationship with him. I sat down with him and I said, I just want to hear why. What, how did you come to this conclusion? And we talked for a long time and he had some of the, the normal arguments that you'd find from somebody who's uh, trying to be an atheist. But one of the things that you could really tell is that he felt God was big brother looking over his shoulder, never wanting him to have any excitement, fun, or anything in life, and he wanted to be the master of his own world. That's what he wanted. Very clear. And he said, think about how mean God is right from the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve do one wrong thing, and what does he do? He kicks them out of the garden. How mean is that? I don't want to serve that kind of a God. And I said, I think you need to read that story again. I said, kicking them out was an act of mercy. And he said, what? I said, there's, there's the tree that you're talking about in the Garden of Eden, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's important that you get the whole term, by the way. And I said, what's the name of the other tree? He said, what other tree? Well, right there tells you that he hadn't read the story closely. The tree of life. It's an act of mercy that God kicked him out because God said, you made a mistake and I want to fix it. And if you stay here, I can't fix it. I've got to fix it. I'm, so he kicks him out of the garden so he could fix the problem. And there you have the rest of Scripture, God fixing the problem of what seems like an incidental issue of us trying to turn ourselves into God. So he was trying to do the same thing. Scripture holds itself up pretty well when you start to read it. 
When you step back from it, it's easy to kind of do whatever you want with it. But when you read it, it'll challenge you. You live it out, you discover it's got a lot of integrity in and of itself. So I'm, I'm working with that understanding as we move forward. So let's talk about Jesus is. Jesus exists. Not did, but is still in existence. There's a, a British survey that was done a few years ago that the BBC reported that 40% of those living in England either don't believe Jesus really existed historically, or they don't believe that, that what we have about Jesus is reported correctly. It's mostly mythical or it's mostly legendary information that's gotten to us. The church or whoever you want has tampered with it along the way. Now, by contrast, and here's an image for you from that Barna study I quoted earlier, they suggest only 8% of the U.S. population uh, is in that same camp. So most of the U.S. population still believes that Jesus was an actual, real, historical person who existed. I would suggest to you, though, that it wouldn't, I, I can foresee in the not-too-distant future that that number would grow and fast. As, as Christianity continues to get challenged over and over again, that seems to be part of the collateral damage that comes. And we live in a land uh, that is very much dedicated to uh, sort of empirical knowledge. If I can't see it, touch it, taste it, or smell it, it doesn't exist. And they hear things like miracles, and they hear things like that, and they say, well, those things can't be true, so maybe the rest of it's not true. They haven't done a historical survey to figure that out. They just assume along the way that that's what's happened. And my guess is that a lot of you have experienced people who have pushed back against your Christian faith anyways in the workplace or in other ways. I remember it. I'm going to celebrate 20 years since my high school graduation this year. It's 20 years. And I, I remember in high school, uh, somebody standing up in class after the end of class, turning to be realizing I'm a Christian. He wasn't. And he said, you know what? The Bible's full of contradictions. You don't need to believe it. And I said, okay, name one. He said, well, it's, I don't know. It's just full of a lot of contradictions. And you get this. I was around a lot of atheists in high school, I remember this, who, who respected me, but they wouldn't ever believe. They had a lot of barriers to faith. I know Stephanie and I have lived in Canada that's moved much further than this, these surveys would show, uh, who said to, people would say to us, and it's coming down this way, the same mentality, eventually science will give us all the answers we need. We won't need religion to fill in those answers for us, right? It's coming this way very fast, that mentality, the God of the gaps sort of thing. And I'm assuming that a lot of you have probably experienced this in small or big ways at work or school or otherwise, even with family members who challenge it just a little bit. Those things can't be real. They must be mythical. They must be whatever it is. And so let me give you a quick apologetic moment. And we're going to actually just say in this, um, and I'm going to use the work of uh, Norman Geisler and Frank Turek in their book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which I recommend. Very good book if you want more information like we're talking about. Here's some of the external sources that show that Jesus was a historical figure. And there are atheist and even agnostic uh, authors out there who would suggest to you it's ludicrous to make the claim that Jesus didn't exist. Historically, you, can't, you don't have a leg to stand on to make that claim. People still try and make that claim. People still will believe it. 40% of the British population believes that. But you don't have a leg to stand on historically. So here's just a little glimpse of the kind of stuff that you're working with outside of the New Testament, if you just want to look at that. Uh, Turek and Geisler say, there are 10 known, so count it up, 10 if you're keeping score, non-Christian writers who mention Jesus in 150 years of his life. 
So that's long enough that you only got a couple generations or a few generations represented. That's long enough that you don't actually have a lot of time if you study history to have a lot of mythical or legendary information coming up. You can certainly get misinformation in there. But for the most part, you're still going to have people who knew the eyewitnesses or knew the eyewitnesses of the eyewitnesses and that kind of thing. So there's still a pretty tight connection in 150 years. All that to say, 150 years, 10 non-Christian sources mention Jesus. In that same time, by comparison, they tell us, in that same 150-year period of time, nine sources, non-Christian sources, mention Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor. Okay, so that gives us some glimpse of what we're working with. If they say, and a lot of people are not willing to include the New Testament because they say it's biased. Incidentally, if you're in a conversation with somebody who says that something is biased, they probably are too. We write things because we're biased, because we have an opinion, right? So let's go on though. Um, If you include the New Testament material and early Christian writings in that 150-year period of time, 43 sources mention Jesus. Only 10, including Christian sources, mention Caesar. That's pretty remarkable, right? And, and they're, they're not little sources that you can easily knock over and say, these are untrue for this reason or that. Three of those sources that mention Jesus that are non-Christian are what you could term anti-Christian. I mean, they mention Jesus in a very pejorative sense or negative sense or are trying to say something negative about Jesus, but they kind of have to begrudgingly acknowledge existence. So you've got external sources that are out there for the existence of Jesus. Now, some of you, I know I'm going to bore with this. Some of you are just eating this up. So let me just give one more thing and then we'll move back to Scripture. But of those 10 non-Christian sources, let me just give you 12 things we could learn if we didn't have the Bible at all from those 10 non-Christian sources. And this tells us something. There are 12 things we can learn that Geisler and Turk point out. They say Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of the Passover. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. His disciples denied the Roman gods and worshiped Jesus as God. Now, that's not biblical source material. We're learning that from. There's some veracity and truth to what's there, I believe. And you can read, there's plenty more. You can read Lee Strobel's work is very good on this, the case for the historical Jesus or the case for Christ, which you can pick up free on your way out if you want, the case for Christ. This Geisler Turek book, very good and gives a lot more source material on why this is uh, believable, historically speaking. Now, I told you we were going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to just take a quick look at that because this is also early source material. 1 Corinthians itself was written in the the mid-50s A.D. Jesus would have been around by about uh, uh, his ascension happening in the mid or uh, early or mid, if I can get my words right, 30s A.D. So you've got a period of about 20 years or so between when 1 Corinthians is written and Paul cites a creed. Paul cites a creed right here that clearly has to be earlier than when Paul is citing it. It's been floating around as scholars. If you again read some of the sources I talk about, some of those scholars talk about how they can pinpoint this as being very 
early in Christian tradition. So if we read 1 Corinthians 15, we get another source of, of what was going on and what early Christians affirmed right away with barely any theologizing, I'd like to point out. It's almost just a factual statement. Paul says, For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. So you get a little theological statement. According to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. There are eyewitness testimonies still around. They can check this out, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born, that is, born out of time. Like I should have been born with all of them, or should have seen it with all of them, and I didn't. There were witnesses. You can read, uh, again, another apologist that does great work on this is J. Warner Wallace on looking at what eyewitness testimony looks like and how even what we have in Scripture works out well as good eyewitness testimony that Jesus did exist. You can start to look at the facts and what they start to say, and you can say, this doesn't seem like it's made up. There's lots of good reason historically and otherwise to believe that Jesus actually was a historical figure, let alone the other stuff that we in the church affirm that scripture affirms about his existence before and after. Now, I want to make some comments then on 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy uh, 2.15, but I, I want to make one comment on one of the stories we heard this morning when Jesus uh, heals 10 lepers. We heard the scripture this morning from Luke 17. Jesus passes through, 10 lepers reach out to him, and they say, Jesus, heal us, help us. And he heals 10 people. They discover the healing on the way, and only one of them, an outsider or Samaritan, returns to Jesus to be healed. It's a fascinating story, and we could, we could say, give some grace, I suppose, to those other nine and say maybe they just couldn't find Jesus when they turned around, but obviously one of them did. It seems like there's probably more ingratitude or selfishness that seems to be at play there, and it seems very instructive of where we are in our culture, I feel like, right now. We have life and limb. We have the ability uh, to live at all, to thrive in this world, and we've been given that by God. And yet not only do we live in a world where we're, we're not recognizing the giver and saying thanks, we're kind of saying the giver doesn't even exist. It's fascinating, isn't it? We're trying to live our own life and yet take what we can from the giver of all good things. And I want to point out that for all ten of those lepers... Their life was a testimony. It was a testimony to what had been done and to their attitude about what had been done. For that one that came back, he testifies to the fact that he's a thankful person. He's grateful, and he recognizes something about Jesus. And Jesus helps him along in that testimony. And for you and I, we have a testimony. Whether we realize it or not, our actions testify to what we think about God and particularly what we think about Jesus and what place Jesus has in our lives. And so we look at 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to stand, uh, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who's not ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. We look at that. And if we're going to stand before God as one approved, we have to, in fact, have that essential relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what God wants out of us, is a relationship. That's what the whole of Scripture is talking about, is how to walk in right 
relationship and live in right relationship with God. How do we get that relationship? The old Sunday school answers are the standby, scripture, prayer, right? But what stands in there that seems so hard in our day and age is actually what that requires is time. It does no good for me to say I love my wife and never spend time with her. It does no good for me to say I've made a commitment to Jesus Christ but never spend time with God. We've been given this revelation through Scripture. We're encouraged to, in fact, build that relationship through prayer with our Heavenly Father. What a magnificent opportunity. And it requires time. Now, we also live in a day and age where saying that is not enough because some of us don't quite have the tools or we don't think we have the tools to do that. Because saying, read your Bible, saying, pray, actually raises the anxiety of some of us in the room. I want to do that. I have the desire. I want to follow God. I want to be close in relationship. But we think, I don't know how to do it. Simply put, the time is the issue for most of us. We have to devote that time to the relationship. And from there, open the book. It turns out to be that simple. Now, the nice thing is, uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to be working on this as a people as we do the community Bible experience, reading through the New Testament in 40 days. You're in for an adventure because that's actually pretty fast-paced, the New Testament in 40 days. And we do that together as a community. Same thing needs to happen. You need to set the time, read the text, watch the changes happen in your life. So we do the same thing. If God wants this relationship with us, it's about creating the time and the space for that to happen through Scripture and through prayer. But the other thing that happens with that is that when we open ourselves up and we walk close with God and set the time apart, then we can develop a godly character because the Holy Spirit starts working in us. And a godly character responds to the world in godly ways. So we live right with God, but we respond in godly ways because God is shaping in us a godly character. And I'll give you uh, a caution. As you look at this text, do your best to stand before God as one approved. That's good. But we live in a culture where it sometimes feels a little bit hard to do that. And we want to be accepted in our world around us. We don't want to be termed as a hater or a judgmental person. We live in a non-judgmental culture, and that's hard. And so it's easy to become a bit of a people pleaser without realizing it. I'll stand before God as one approved, but when I'm in the crowd outside of that presence or so I think, I'll just fit in. It's much easier. I'll just meld in. And let me tell you, giving in to people pleasing is dissatisfying because it, it, it brings out guilt. You betray someone, whether it's God, whether it's others. You always betray someone when that is it. Do your best to stand before God as one approved in your conduct, in who you are, in the relationship, but then in your actions in the world. You're not going to be ashamed as a worker standing in the world. But let me tell you what that looks like, brothers and sisters in Christ. To stand before God as one approved, to be a worker who's unashamed, it means that we stand in the world as graceful, not as milk toast. We don't just flop with whatever's going on around, but we're graceful in our interactions with other people. We enter our world as those standing before God approved and a worker who's unashamed as loving but discerning in our actions. 
and in how we're going to convey that love. And we go into our world as a worker unashamed who is bold, but not a jerk. Let's not be jerks, evangelical brothers and sisters. We're graceful, loving, and bold. Unashamed. We want to stand before our God as one approved, be a worker who's unashamed. But we've got to, we've got to have a testimony to share that's worth hearing. Not just be a jerk. And it, it, the, the verse finally says to be one who correctly handles the word of truth. If you're going to correctly handle the word of truth, here's the painful, obvious, simple fact. You actually have to handle the word of truth. You actually have to stick your nose in the book. You actually have to pray to the word, to the one who saves. We will have days where we doubt what we believe. That's why we have one another. That's why we have creeds. That's why we have scripture. And one doubt isn't bad. Even multiple doubts aren't bad. But a whole host of doubts starts to act like termites in our house, threatening our structural integrity of our faith. I remember talking when I was a youth pastor years ago to a young atheist. Uh, I, I was doing this. I had a pretty good, it wasn't great, pretty good youth lesson we did one night. We had about a dozen kids. They brought friends. That was a great turnout for the small church I was serving. Um, and at the end, everybody cleared out of the room except this one little guy who wanted to talk to me, about 15-year-old. And he's like, that was a pretty good little talk. And I can tell this isn't going to go well the way he said it. And, and so he starts talking, and he's talking about how he's an atheist and what he believes. And we talked through it for a while. And I said, it sounds to me like you're really trying to research and understand if there is a God out there. I commend you for that. I said, but, I mean, it sounded like he was kind of sure, too, of things. And I said, don't ever let yourself get to the point where you feel like I've, I've arrived, because you won't. You haven't. Always pursue the truth. Always pursue the answers. And the same goes for us, brothers and sisters. We know there's a God. But we have to always pursue the truth of the matter. And when we have doubts, that's okay. But we can't let him eat away at us forever and ever because there are resources out there for us. We will have questions. That's fine. There are books. There are articles. There are websites. There are even people in this room who have probably dealt with the exact same questions and doubts you have. We have the resources before us to pursue those things, to live with God in right relationship, to to stand and be unashamed in our faith and to correctly handle the word of truth. And to do all that, we need to make sure we pursue those areas where we're unsure, to be supported by the body of believers, to stay in the word. It holds itself up very well. We've talked about that this morning. And really to sit in God's presence. Ask, seek, knock. God, I don't understand. God, I'm not sure. God, I want to experience your presence. Ask, seek, knock. Give the time to God that we would sit in his presence so we could stand before God as one approved. As we continue to talk about this over the next few weeks, uh, this is the longer of the sermons that I plan on giving you. You can say amen to that. Uh, But I want to challenge you. Simple thing. Memorize 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy, if I can get the book right. 2 Timothy 2.15. Took me five minutes. It was very easy. Internalize it. Write it down. Talk it out. Memorize it. Why? So you can pray it and live it. So you can remember, I need to be one who's walking right with God so I can stand before God as one approved. I need to walk right with God so that when I go to school and when I go to work this week, when I go to the store, when I'm dealing with my family, 
that I would be unashamed, that I would correctly handle the word of truth, and that I would be of godly character because I'm walking in sync with God. Memorize it. Internalize it. Make it part of who you are so that we become more like Jesus Christ. That's my encouragement to you today. Jesus exists. He's with us now. Let's serve our Christ who gave himself for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he didn't just exit the scene. He says, I'm with you always. He says, I leave my advocate with you, the one who comes alongside of you, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. We're not left alone in this world, God, so we can, in fact, succeed at standing before you as one approved. Thank you for that, for not sending us into this world to fail, but encouraging us to succeed, but giving us the power to succeed in that, that we could walk in close relationship with you. God, help us this week to make these words in Second Timothy lived out, that we could stand before you prove that we could work in our various uh, environments in this world, whether it's on the road or in the cubicle or in the classroom, that we would be a testimony of your goodness in our lives, unashamed to show that. People who love, who show grace, who are bold in our faith, but not mean to others. Lifting others up so that they would see you through us, so that they could stand as one approved. And God, for those of us who sit in the room today and say, I feel far from you. I don't feel like I'm approved. I feel guilty. I feel pleased. God, send your spirit in here to relieve the guilt and the shame that holds us back from your presence. By the blood of the Lamb, we can be redeemed of that. So redeem us today. Help us stand before you as one approved. We pray this in your name. Amen.